Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter of Scripture. We have been studying this chapter. This will be our seventh sermon on the chapter, and we gave it up for a while at the beginning of Advent, at the beginning of December for Advent and Christmas, and now we return to it. This chapter has three sections. The first section speaks of the, opens up to us the fact that all the spiritual gifts in the world without love are nothing, and therefore those who claim they have spiritual gifts, if they don't have love, they're nothing. And to be nothing, as Scripture is saying, it means you're not, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You don't know God. You don't have faith. You're damned. And so Paul is, the Apostle Paul is writing to a, to a church which is very much like our church, in a city just like our city in Corinth. It's a city that is completely filled up with pride in its intellectual and cultural sophistication. And everybody's full of themselves, and then the people in the church can take special pride in the fact that not only do they have all the benefits of all the sophistication of their city, but they also have the benefits of being someone who speaks in tongues, somebody who has the gift of preaching, somebody who has the gift... And you remember that, and so Christians have the world, and then on top of the world, superiority to the world. That's a beautiful illustration of the church in America today. We can have all this, and Jesus too, right? And the Apostle Paul writes them, and he says, basically, uh, well, not basically anything. The Apostle Paul never says the word like. You know like. You know, he doesn't say basically. He just says, you're nothing. And remember what Luther says, which is that this text is written specifically to pastors. And if you read his opening up of this text again and again and again, he speaks to pastors. All right? Who has a higher view of themselves because of their gift of prophecy and preaching and teaching than a pastor, a writer, an author, a seminary professor, a BSF teacher? So let us hear the word of God. It's, it's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the, first, uh, the whole chapter again today, and then we'll pick up with verse 8. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Doesn't seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul has declared the hopelessness and lostness of those who are without love. And we remember Luther saying this whole chapter is focused on pastors. We as pastors may claim we have great spiritual gifts speaking with the tongue of men and of angels, speaking prophetically, knowing all mysteries and knowledge, having all faith, and yet without love we are nothing. We're damned. We are without hope. And this is not because love saves us. Faith is the tool that God uses to save us, to communicate to us his grace and eternal life. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But faith is never alone. True faith never exists alone. True faith always has fruit. And the principal fruit is love. And so those of us who, who call ourselves Reformed will want to talk about sola fide. But don't forget that it isn't true faith if it just exists by itself. In other words, if you say, well, I know Jesus, and I know what he came to do, and I know I'm a sinner, and ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da and there's not love in your life, you aren't a Christian. Because faith never, true faith never exists alone. It just doesn't. If you speak with the tongue of men and angels, you don't have love. You're nothing. And again, nothing means you have not been born again by the Spirit of God. You are not justified. This business that because you can repeat truths from Scripture means you're saved is a lie from hell. We are saved not by love, but by faith. But if we're saved by faith, we love. You remember what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he, 
when he, he warned us, he said, if you refuse to forgive men their sins, then your heavenly Father will refuse to forgive your sins. And so everybody wants to say, well, we must, we must be saved by forgiving sins. No, again, the issue is, if you have true saving faith, how can you, having been forgiven what you've been forgiven, not forgive others? It's impossible. So if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father has not forgiven you and won't forgive you. You live in bitterness, you're, you're not saved. You don't know God. If you live in bitterness, you don't know God. Jesus said, if you refuse to forgive men their sins, then your heavenly Father will refuse to forgive your sins. And the same thing is true here. If you don't have love, how great the love of the Father is that we have been called the children of God, and that is what you are. What? If you have faith, if you believe. And so, love does not save us. Faith is the tool that God uses to communicate to us salvation. Okay? But you can have had God give you the gift of faith without being given the gift of love. It's the fruit of your faith. Okay? Now, at this point, if you've heard the Apostle Paul say, without faith, you're nothing, and you understand nothing means damned, you're hopeless, then the first question you have is what? What is love? Because why? Well, because you want to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Does this make sense? If you've seen the, the, the glory of love, and that it's the sine qua non of spiritual life. Without it, you don't have any spiritual life. Then immediately you say, what is love? I want to know whether I love, right? Isn't that the natural thing? And so then the Apostle Paul in the middle section of this chapter opens up what love is. And I don't know what they did before the internet because what he says love is is Instagram and tweets and, and updates and Hallmark cards for you old people. Come on, laugh. Please laugh. I mean, really, don't we think that, that true love is, is the perfect Instagram? You know, every mother believes that. I want to show all my friends how much I love my children. So I'm going to take this picture, and it's going to be set up this way, right? Or, you know, an update about how much you love God. Or an update quoting some Puritan who's been dead for centuries saying how much he loves God. And that, by extension, means you love God because you think the world of a Puritan who says he loves God. Right? A tweet about how good your church is. You know? Listen, if your love exists publicly, it's not love. Love does not call attention to itself. Love does not tweet itself. You know, I can't, sorry. Okay, all right. Social media. All right, listen. I do not want to read on Facebook that you love your husband. Okay? I just don't. So if I ever read Facebook, don't let me read you saying you love your husband. Please, please save me. Spare me. And you say, well, you're just fuddy-duddy. Most other people really enjoy that sort of stuff. And I say, no, they don't. They're just envious of you. And that's the whole point. Think of all your friends who don't really love their husbands. They can't stand him. You know those friends, right? I mean, women, come on, be honest. You know? 
And so you say, how wonderful your husband is, and what does that do? That just sets up a pecking order, which is all about Facebook anyhow. Love is not a vapor. It's not an Instagram. It's not an update. It's not miss. It's not vapors. It's not a Hallmark card. Love is patient. Now there, mothers, have I stroked you where you itch. Well, I mean, immediately when I say love is patient, you're all going, oh, no, that's what I was afraid love would be. <laughs> you know? And here's, here's the beauty of God. He's not like we are. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his thoughts above our thoughts, his ways from our ways. So take a bulldozer to your smartphone and all its social media and try to be patient with your children. Okay? Now, if you don't know me, you might think that I have it in for women. But now I have to discipline myself to talk to women. Now, men, love is kind. 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 Are you kind? Do you love? Are you kind? Love is patient, and love is kind. I'm not sure kind is the first thing many of us would have our wives say about us. I'm not saying that, that kindness is the kind of man who's unflappable because he's bored with life and he hates emotional intimacy, and so he just, pfft. that's not kindness. Kindness is when a man is fully engaged with his wife and his children. And he sees the errors, he sees the sin, he sees the weakness. And he, he gently leads those who have young. You remember that? That's what the Bible says about God. He gently leads those. That's what Moses said? Or that's what Moses was like? Love is patient. Love is kind. I'm having real trouble this morning with my pages. Okay, here we go. No. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, here I go. I hope you were patient. Okay, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Remember we said that to, be, to act unbecomingly is to be froward. F-R-O-W-A-R-D. A word that we haven't used in a long time. What is an unbecoming action? What is a froward action? Well, let me introduce you to another word we've forgotten, which is the word brash. The word brash is a word that has been used most especially to refer to women who don't act in a feminine way, but act in a masculine way. So a brash woman is something up with which it is hard to put. Okay? Now, men won't say that today because we've become acclimated to brash women, and we think that that's what we want our daughters to be like. So we raise our daughters to be brash. Brash is bad. Why is brash bad? Because it's acting unbecomingly. And you say, well, 
what do you mean? Do you mean a woman should never speak her mind? And I say, yeah, 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 that's what I mean. You, you must know my daughters and my wife. So what do I mean by brash? Well, it's unbecoming. Why is it unbecoming? Because for a woman to speak as if there isn't a man present is to not observe her station in life. Anytime you act in a way that is not fitting for your station in life, you are froward. You are unbecoming. You are brash. Or let's say, for instance, a homeless guy in Bloomington. Let's say he chose homelessness and wasn't homeless because I didn't help him. Okay? Just for hypothetical construct, okay? And this guy sees that there's a whole bunch of people gathered, and it's commencement for IU. And he decides that he's going to observe commencement. And so he stinks, and he smells, and he's dirty, and he's dressed the opposite of to the nines. And he, should, he sees all the hoods, right? And he says, I'm going to march too, right? And he inserts himself right between the philosophy and the school of propagation. And he marches into that assembly hall, wherever it is. And he shows up on the platform. And this is acting unbecomingly. Why? Well, because he doesn't have a PhD. He doesn't have a hood. He's not a faculty member. But, oh, he's just sure. He's God's gift to the world. And he marches in there, right? Love does not act unbecomingly. Love observes its station in life. Now, this is a foreign concept to all of us. We don't even think in terms of stations of life because we've all read Horatio Alger's stories, and we think that God has told us that our purpose in life is to not observe our station in life. You know? The whole point of being a woman is to become a man today, right? We all know this, right? Everybody know this? You know, the best woman is the woman that's most manly. You know, she she can be the CEO, she can be a lawyer, she can be a doctor, she can be a preacher, she 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 can be rich, she can, you know, she can have everything and make babies too. She can do anything a man can do but do it better. Now, why do I talk about men and women? Well, because it's the most foundational category of existence that God has given every one of us. That's why society attacks that point, because society wants to destroy the order of God, starting at the foundation, and that's sexuality. But then you move your way up, and you move your way to the issue of, say, for instance, if you're a patient and not a doctor. Say, for instance, that you're a physician's assistant and not a physician. Say, for instance, you're a nurse. Say, for instance, you're a dental hygienist and not a dentist. Say, for instance, you're a teacher and not a principal. Say, for instance, you're a student and not a professor. All of us have an unending succession of positions in life, and we are to observe them in a way that shows our honor for God. Because every one of those positions where we're have been given a position that's subordinate to somebody else is there because God has made it there. It's not an accident. It's not because you failed math in high school. (laughs) God had a position in life for you, and that was to be a dental hygienist instead of a dentist. And if you resent the fact that's acting unbecomingly, love does not act unbecomingly. 
okay? It doesn't mean you should just say, well, I'm a failure and I'm going to be a failure. <laughs> it doesn't mean there's something wrong with success, okay? Okay. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And listen, if I had to preach one phrase of Scripture the rest of my life, that's the one I'd preach. Because all of us are so convinced of what God owes us. But we never say it like that. We never say, well, God owes me a wife that sees my eminence, my dignity as a husband. What we say is, why can't my wife respect me? Right? Why can't my children treat me with respect? And so we're all keeping track, especially uh, siblings. Don't worry, Samuel, I'm not going to say anything about you. And neither you, Cynthia. I won't talk about you. So what is it like to have an older sister, anyhow? Wouldn't it be better if you were the older brother and she was the younger sister? Really, I mean, honestly, come on, Samuel. I mean, have you ever thought about it? You know, you think about us as brothers and sisters And I'm telling you, at the age of 63, it doesn't stop. I still have a brother, and there is still a pecking order. Love does not keep track of wrongs, and we do wrongs to our brothers and sisters all the time. It's not fair setting the table. It's not fair cleaning up the kitchen. It's not fair taking out the trash. It's not fair the way our mother obviously rejoices in the wonderful gifts of her one daughter. You know, I had a brother that died, and that's the worst thing that can happen in, in, in sibling relationships. Because once that brother dies, he, he, be, he be beatified, <laughs> you know? He's, he's perfect from that day on, and you can't ever pull him down because he's in heaven, you know? And so my sister and I and our, our siblings, we used to joke about my brother Joe, you know, and he was really perfect, actually. I mean, you know, national, everything, everything, godly, everything, you know. And we were just so sick of him being perfect. (laughs) Does this sound bad? (laughs) Yeah, Eric says it does sound bad. Okay, all right. It's bad, but I mean, this is, you know. And so we used to make a joke at our dinner table about how Joe was an Eagle Scout. And every time we'd say that, my mother would say, he wasn't an Eagle Scout. Because my mother was the perfect keeper of everything Joe-ish. And of course, we knew he wasn't an eagle spout. We were joking. He should have been an eagle. If the Boy Scouts had known about my brother, they would have made him an honorary. Love does not keep track of wrongs. You think about how much of our world is simply a listing of I've been done wrong. And that's all it is. My mama done me wrong. My papa done me wrong. My brother and sister done me wrong. The professor done me wrong. The pastor done me wrong. The elders done me wrong. Men done done me wrong. (laughs) Listen, uh, it's true. It's all true. Love does not 
keep a record of wrongs. It's not that love keeps a record of wrongs and gives that record to God. (laughs) Remember our friend Claire Jarrett. Do you remember when she decided she was going to be done with her bitterness? you remember what she did? She took and wrote down all the wrongs and she burned them. She burned them. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. You know, her husband committed suicide a couple years later. And I hate to think of what would have happened to Claire if she had not written all the wrongs that were done to her and burned them. Do you understand me? Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, love is steady as she goes. Love is a long, slow obedience in the same direction. Love endures all things. Love bears weight. If you've read the thing I wrote on fatherhood, do you remember that section where I talk about Max? I talk about Max bearing weight in this church. Where would we be without Max? And then I talk about how Max, remember I say that the tractor pitched him off? You know, one day he was out on his tractor and he hit a hole and he went flying off the tractor and I said that I was concerned for the ground but not for Max. And then I said that when Max was younger, well, maybe he still does it, I don't know, but that he would sometimes say to his family, come and and lie on top of me. It's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Why would Max say, because Max has been made by God to be an ox, And what does an ox do? It bears weight. And he wanted to feel the weight of his family lying on top of him. Get down on the living room floor, have all his family lie on top of him so he could feel the weight. Because why? Because Max loves and he is made to bear all things. And really wise men don't make a separation between the flesh and the spirit. He wanted to feel in his flesh what was true of him in his spirit. Love bears all things, love endures all things. Hopes all things, believes all things. And then it moves into the third section, which is love never fails. So it ends the description of love by saying love endures all things, and then it says love never fails, and it's almost redundant. Love never fails. Now, what does this mean to say that love never fails? Well... When we're told that love never fails, what we're being told is two things, or we're being told that love never fails in two dimensions. The first dimension is that, well, the second dimension is that love will not fail eternally, that love, and and this is where we end the whole chapter, that love will continue throughout eternity, okay? So it's pointing forward to that truth that ends the chapter. But it's also saying that love doesn't fail here in this life. Okay? Let me read from Luther. Luther says, Worldly individuals and false 
saints. In other words, people who aren't saved, who don't know God, who haven't been justified, who, who don't know God. He says worldly individuals and false saints immediately on perceiving contempt or ingratitude draw back unwilling to do further good to any. All right? In other words, their fatherhood is reciprocal. If you give me the dignity and honor and respect that I deserve, then I will deign, <laughs> lower myself to love you and to provide for you and to treat you civilly. But if you don't give me the eminence and respect that I deserve, I'm going to make your life miserable and I'm going to remind you you're not giving me the respect and eminence that I deserve. And listen, the reason I'm using my voice in this way is it is like, it is like fingers on a chalkboard to have such an authority over us. They're supposed to have dignity, and so the way they get their dignity is be, by being undignified and demanding that you give them their dignity. And it's pathetic. Huh? Huh? Right? None of you have ever seen this in your own homes, right? No. I'm glad you have a perfect home. So Luther is saying this. Don't worry, I know you don't. And I know you weren't saying you did. He says, worldly individuals and false saints immediately on perceiving contempt or ingratitude. In other words, there are many fathers that as soon as they see that their children aren't thankful for them or that their children treat them with disrespect, what do they do? Remember what he says. He says, they back up. They distance themselves, okay? And he says, they draw back unwilling to do further good to any and rendering themselves. So he says, okay, they see that they don't have gratitude or that they have disrespect. And it's like, hmm. And they back up. And then Luther says this. He says, when they back up like that and refuse to do any more good, he says they render themselves quite inhuman Becoming perfect misanthropes. Now, what's a misanthrope? A misanthrope is a hater of mankind. Listen, this is true of an awful lot of us. Let's be honest. An awful lot of us are only, quote, loving if we think there's a good chance it will be responded to. And yet, God loved us when we were his enemies. How can we know God and be, uh, what would you say, be um, uh, tit for tat? How can we love God and refuse to love people who don't love us? I don't get it. The Bible doesn't say here in his love, not that we love God so that we realize that that, that God loved us when we were not loving him, but the Bible goes on and says, why were yet his enemies? We are to love those who don't reciprocate, those who treat us with disrespect. We are to love those who don't love us. Otherwise, we're not Christians. And what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It bears all things, endures all things, hopes all things. You say, well, I can't do that to people that are disrespectful. You know, I can't be dissed and then respond in love. And I say, that's right, because you don't know God. And you say, well, Tim, you don't do that. And I say, a duh. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about you. It is your obligation to be like your heavenly Father, who sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God's love showers on the world day by day by day. He never stops doing good to his enemies. Love never fails, verse 8, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. This is interesting because, you know, if, if you're reformed, you know, knowledge is everything. What your heart is like doesn't matter if you have the right knowledge and you say the right things. But what it's saying here is the day of tongues, the day of knowledge... The day of prophecy, preaching, it's, it's going to come to an end. Now, why would that be? Well, why do you need preaching in heaven when you see face to face? When you know fully as you are presently known by God, why would you need preaching? Why would you need prophecy? In heaven, you will know everything that God has decreed for you to know. There will no longer be a period of... Uh, um, probation. Okay? In heaven, it's going to be full. Everything will be full. Exactly as full as God wants it. So in heaven, we don't need knowledge because we will have perfect. We don't need to be taught. We don't need to, 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 to be preached to, to be admonished. We don't need to speak in tongues. In heaven, we have everything perfectly. And so what he's saying is, look, I remind you again these things are going to come to an end. All the things that you put such a value on in America, in the church today, in the Reformed Church, all the things you Corinthians are just caught up. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus, I'm of Paul. All this stuff, it's going to end. And when it ends, you know, it's like uh, mu musical chairs. When it ends, the only people that get to sit are those that have love. And everyone else is tossed. Tossed. Bestseller, speaker at Ligonier conferences, Billy Graham's son. No, 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 no. Do we have love? For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So this elaborates on this, that this is the time when these three summas, these three great goods, okay, uh, faith, hope, and love, when these things, one of them endures, and the other two, the time of perfect has come, and so they're done, Okay?
Now, if we hadn't gotten it, he now uses an illustration, and the illustration is childhood, and he says this. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, the Apostle Paul is referring to children, but in referring to children, he's referring to adults. He's getting us to compare ourselves to children, and he's saying, look, Do you remember when you were a child? Do you remember how you acted, how you thought? Do you remember how you spoke? That's like you now, as an adult, in comparison to heaven. You're in a period of probation. You're in a period of infancy, of of, of incubation. And all of these things that we're saying are going to end are, you know, the lights and the shelter that keep you warm. They are the womb of the spiritual life that will be revealed in heaven. They are the embryo, they are the womb, they are the umbilical cord, they are the amniotic fluid of spiritual life. Okay? And here we're children and we need preachers. Here we're children, we need the fellowship of the church. We need the sacraments. These are God lowering himself to our weakness. Now, it would be very easy for you to conclude that because these things are spoken of in terms of childishness, for you to disdain these things, right? Oh, I get it. These things are just like for my probationary period, but I'm a very sophisticated man. And I'm a spiritual woman. I've been going to BSF for 30 years. And so I've had it with this stuff, you know? I'm not going to lower myself to going to church anymore. I'm not going to lower myself to the sacraments. I know the sacraments don't save me. And I don't need the fellowship of the church. I, myself, and me have as much fellowship as we can have, (laughs) you know? And so we look at the very things that God says are going to come to an end, and we despise them. Because it's humiliating to have to come up and eat out of the elders' hands and to have the pastor tell us, you may not come if you are, you know, unforgiving towards people. Why should I have him tell me who? You know, we had a couple that came to church here for, I almost want to say, 10 to 15 years. And listen, from back at ECC, every single time I serve the Lord's Supper, I always say the same thing. I always say, look, we have open communion. It doesn't matter what Bible-believing church you're a part of, if you're a member in good standing of that church, we're happy for you to come here. This is the Lord's meal. It's not ours. And then I say, but if you refuse to submit to the officers of a church, and you're not a member, you may not come to this table. They heard this hundreds of times from my mouth. And then they up and left. So I went to visit them, and I said, you know, what happened? And they said, well... You said we can't take communion if we're not members. Well, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to know that we are sometimes not as observant of who are and aren't members. I mean, if people have been coming since the days of ECC, you know, you just don't really notice they're a part of the church, you know. And then I realized that they had never joined. Listen, the Apostle Paul is not speaking of the gift of 
preaching, the gift of tongues, the gift. He's not speaking of hope and faith because these things are inferior. He's not speaking of them because they're defective. And he is not saying that because we're children and need these things, that these things are wrong or we're wrong to need them. The truth is that God gives us faith by the word and principally by the word preached. And that happens in a church. The truth is at the beginning of the church in Jerusalem, it says they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. These were the Christians. But in America today, the world in America is filled with people who are absolutely convinced they're Christians, and they despise the church. Okay? They despise the church. They can give you the best patter about Jesus and saved and all this stuff. They can probably describe to you precisely how the doctrine of justification works. They can give you, are you ready, a disquisition on the five solas. They can give you a disquisition on election and predestination and, and, and reprobacy and all this stuff. They can even pronounce acquisitive. That was pretty funny. <laughs> if you were in Sunday school, you know what I'm... And they despise the church. And this, this cannot be. When the Apostle Paul talks about childhood and thinking and, and acting and, and speaking like a child... He is not saying that we should not think and act and speak like a child. God has lowered himself to our weakness, and he has given us the sacraments. He's given us the preaching of the word and the word itself. He's given us fellowship because without them we die spiritually. And I will tell you what I have said over and over again. If you don't love the church, how can you love anybody else? How can you love God? Christ died for the church. She is his bride. You cannot know Christ and not love the church. I'm sorry to say it. You can't love Christ and not love the church. You know what it says in John. It says, how can you say that you love God if you don't love your brother, right? Because you can't see God, but you can see your brother. How can you say you love God and hate your brother? Doesn't work. The same thing is true. How can you say you love God and not love the bride of his son? How can you say that you submit to God and refuse to submit to the church when he has said, obey those who are over you in the Lord? You say you submit to God, but you don't submit to elders? It's impossible. So listen, on this childish thing, let's not... Uh, diss the church. Let's not look down on it because he says it's something for our period of probation, for our infancy, for our childhood. You and I need the church. And we need the church specifically at the points where the church humiliates us. And I don't mean humiliation in a bad way. I mean where the church says, no. I had one of the pastors here say no to me in the past two weeks. And man, was that good. I've told him over and over again, that was good. You know, that was a good punch to the gut. It was Lucas. God bless Lucas. <laughs> and about something serious, don't think that I'm just 
you know, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 this hurt, okay? Listen, you have to love the church. And do not treat your children in a demeaning way. And I've jumped to mothers, okay? Your children are children. They're not adults, And so you have to be understanding of their weakness as God is understanding of ours. Don't yell at your children because they're children. Guess what your children are? They're children. Let them be childish. It takes a long time to raise a person. (laughs) You know, if God had wanted them to, to be gestated in a day, And then to become an adult in three days, he could have done it that way. But he didn't. They sit in that womb, dependent on you for nine months, and then they come out and they're dependent on you for the rest of your life. You'll never get done with your children being children to you. Right? Let me read what Martin Luther says about this. To children who are yet weak, play is a necessity. It is a substitute for office and work. Similarly, we in the present life are far too frail to behold God. Until we are able, it is necessary that we should use the medium of word and faith which are adapted to our limitations. Now, come on, that's beautiful. Your children play because they can't do your work yet. But every bit of their play, Mary Lee just got rid of the dollhouse. You know, the dollhouse is Victorian. I wanted the dollhouse. One day it was gone, and I kind of resented it a little bit. You know, she gave it away. She didn't ask me for permission. Now, I'd made one of those dollhouses, you know. It was gone. What are you doing, lover? Kids don't play with the dollhouse. What'd she do? She put up their kitchens galore, little miniature kitchens with pans and pots. And guess what? Now the granddaughters are up there all the time. Why? Well, because children tune their lips here at the door that what they are to do there, they do here before. Children are adults working hard to replace their father and their mother. That's all they are. And so don't be impatient with them. If they burn the cookies, they have to. Nobody's ever learned not to burn cookies except by burning cookies. Okay? Right? You understand this. Little boys don't know the difference between... Remember, it's not about me. It's about you. Okay? Little boys don't know the difference between a Phillips and a flathead screwdriver. You know? SAE and metric. Oh, how impatient I was as a father, especially with my sons. Listen, children are children, and the same thing is true of you as you're instructed, as you're nursed, as you're admonished, as you're rebuked in the church, as you come to the Lord's table. You're a child. So would you please humble yourself and let us minister to you? You need to be rebuked. You need to be disciplined. You need to be admonished. Because the Apostle Paul is speaking of these things as if they're childhood. doesn't mean that you're above it. You're a child as an adult. I always say this to kids. We have to admonish a kid, and I'll say to them, listen, do you think your father is not admonished? 
do you think I'm not admonished? Do you think I'm not disciplined? (laughs) And I say to them, I'm disciplined. The elders are disciplined. The older women of the church are disciplined and admonished all the time. We never get over it. This is the period of our probation. And when we get to heaven, it'll be done. And that's how the text ends. The text ends, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. In other words, God knows me perfectly right now, even though I'm looking through a glass darkly. I, you know, think of what glass windows, think of what mirrors. We're not sure whether he was speaking of mirrors or or windows at the time, but back then, it was horrible. You know, you could barely see it. It's like the old, old, old movies. And he says, then we're not going to have to look in a mirror that's made of tin or something. We're not going to have to look through a piece of glass that's like mica. Then we're going to see it perfectly, absolutely perfectly, face-to-face, God. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. And then he ends with this statement. He says, but now, faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me read from Calvin. Calvin says this. He says, By faith we are born again, and we become the sons of God. All right? And he quotes uh, Scripture in 1 John 5, 4. He says, Faith is our victory which overcomes the world. And he goes on to deal with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that we're saved by love. This is the center of the whole division between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church says that we're saved by the beatific vision, by works, by love. That as we love, we become like God and we are qualified to enter heaven. And so if that work of love is not completed sufficiently for us to be worthy of heaven, then it will be completed in purgatory. Are you with me? It is the doctrine of infusion. It's not imputation, but infusion. As we come to the sacraments, as we do the works, we will have our love grow and grow and grow until we are worthy of of the presence of God. That's infusion. Protestants say no. We are justified by faith. By grace, through faith. In other words, Protestants say, we will never have enough love to merit God. And let me tell you something. There has never been anybody who has died and has had sufficient love that God allows them into his heaven because they're worthy of it. There's not one person that's ever entered heaven who has entered heaven on the basis of anything other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's not one Christian who, as he gets older and older and older, does not grow and is aware of his sinfulness. Do you understand me? The life of a Christian, says Luther, is a life of repentance. 
It doesn't stop when you turn 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or my mother-in-law who in a couple months will be 100. She still, when she prays, begins to cry. And why does she cry? She cries because she knows that she is not worthy of being listened to by the holy God. And she has grown in her awareness of that as she gets older. It's not been lessened. The Roman Catholic Church is idolatrous, say the Reformers. They never stop saying that because the Roman Catholic Church teaches you that you will enter heaven when you have been able to become worthy of it. We say faith alone because faith gives us the righteousness of Jesus. Faith is the tool that God uses to give us the righteousness of Jesus. It's not faith that saves you. But you aren't saved without faith. Faith gives you the righteousness of Christ. Faith is what God uses to give you the righteousness of Jesus. And only the righteousness of Jesus will ever allow you to enter the presence of God. Ever! Listen, nobody preaches against the Roman Catholic Church anymore. But there's an eternity of difference between the doctrine of imputation and infusion. You will never love enough to merit the presence of God. Never. And if you think you do, it's because you don't have the first clue about what love is. Do you understand me? But when you trust solely in the righteousness of Jesus, then God will make you loving. It'll be unbelievable as the years go by. You'll see that you're growing in love. I want to end by reading a little section from uh, Calvin. If I can find it. Okay, here it is. He's talking about the Roman Catholics, and he says, If faith justifies us, say they, then much more does love, which is declared to be greater. So the Roman Catholics say faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. He says, Roman Catholics say because love is what remains and the others are done away with, and that means love is superior, right? And so that's how you save. You're saved through love. It's love that justifies. So he's just repeating what Roman Catholics say. And then he says the solution of this objection is already furnished from what I've stated, but let's grant that love is in every respect superior. In other words, it's not true that it's in every respect superior, but let's give them for the sake of argument that love is in every respect superior to faith. He says, what sort of reasoning is that? That because it is greater, therefore it is of more avail for justifying men. He says, then a king will plow the ground better than a husbandman. And he will make a shoe better than a shoemaker because he's more noble than either. Then a man will run faster than a horse and will carry a heavier burden than an elephant because he's superior in dignity. Then angels will give light to the earth better than the sun and moon because they're more excellent. 
He says, if the power of justifying depended on the dignity or merit of faith, they might perhaps be listened to, but we don't teach that faith justifies. On the ground of its having more worthiness or occupying a higher station of honor, but because it, faith, receives the righteousness which is freely offered in the gospel. I make no bones about it that I love the Apostle Paul, and I know it sounds pious to say that, but I don't recognize the Apostle Paul in the church today. This man is endlessly helpful. And this man is helpful by punching us in the, in the gut. And he never stops punching us in the gut. Don't tell me that you've just heard this chapter opened up and that you're just complacent now. You know, that everything's okay with you, right? Is there any person here that thinks, well, <laughs> you know, I think I'm okay. Now, the whole point of God's word is to show us we're not okay. The whole point of fellowship of the church is to tell us we're not okay. But here's the thing. We see that God loves us, not okay. And then we love others, not okay. And this is the Christian life. And we will die not okay. I am so tired of hearing people talk about dead people. I've had it with it. You know the one thing that's never present when people die anymore? Sin! I love the Apostle Paul because he's got my number from beginning to end. And so I recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit in the Apostle Paul. And listen, if you cannot hear the voice of God in the people that you look to for wisdom and counsel, and if you don't always feel just a little bit unbalanced when you get done talking to Christians, but also loved, you need fellowship. You need the preaching of the word. You need the Lord's Supper. Because the purpose of these things is to reduce us to what we are. It should be the one place. I remember years ago, <laughs> I had just gotten to the former church I served here in the community, and so I was calling the two previous pastors and asking them for advice they had for me as I started at that church. And he gave me some advice. And then he said, now, Tim, on the issue of manhood and womanhood, I think you're going to have trouble because this is a university community. He was a feminist, believed women should be pastors and elders. And so he talked a little bit about giving me advice about how I really ought to toe the line with feminism and all this stuff, you know. And of course, I, this was news to me because I was a country bumpkin. I'd never heard of feminism. And I'm being completely facetious. <laughs> I'd done my undergraduate work at UW-Madison, which makes Indiana University look tame by comparison. <laughs> right? I know all about feminism. I married one. Come on, Laugh. I know about feminism because I am one. 
So he got done telling me that I needed to make my peace with feminism if I was going to be a successful pastor in a university community. When he got done talking, this is what I said to him. I said to him, you know that everywhere you go, everything you hear is feminist today. Political correctness has absolutely gagged all true thinking and believing on the campus of the university. It's the professors, it's the students, it's the administration, it's absolutely everything. It's a monotone, and it's all feminism. And I said, you know, I like to think that some people on the campus of IU would like once in their lives to hear something different. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the church. It won't flatter you. It's not a Facebook page. It's not a Twitter feed. But the Apostle Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and every single time I read Scripture, it's so contrary to me. Everything I think, it's just like, bam, bam, you know? It's like having Lucas. Every word is Lucas, you know? Would you please love the Apostle Paul? Because when you love what he says in the Scripture, you're loving the Holy Spirit's words. Okay? Okay, please. Please. He said, please. I have to be out of my mind. Let's have the Lord's Supper.